This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. If you'd open up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Um, we are working through a study. It's been really kind of thrilling walking through Romans 8. It's an exciting chapter. If you're new to the Bible, this is an exciting chapter. If you're old to the Bible, this is an exciting chapter about what God has done for us. And I want to make you aware of a couple of resources that will help you. Uh, back at our book room, if you're new here, that's right back here. Uh, we sell books, and uh, we have a book that goes through Romans 8 that's been very helpful. It's called Supernatural Living for Natural People, um, The Life-Giving Message of Romans 8 by Ray Ortland. And so I, I just couldn't recommend this high enough, highly enough. Uh, someone last week told me they bought this book, I think on Mother's Day or so, and had read it three times. It, it was helping this person that much. And uh, it's helped me that much, too. So I want to recommend this to you, and uh, I quote him a lot. I'm going to quote him a number of times a day because it's so helpful. Last week, I preached on adoption and uh, that God the Father has adopted us as his children. Here's a very helpful book that we have back there. Both of these books are on a table back in the book room. This one's called Children of the Living God, Delighting in the Father's Love. I love that. Delighting in the Father's Love. And uh, it's by Sinclair Ferguson. So this is very helpful, too, to help you just be freshly rooted in God the Father's love uh, for you. So today we're going to look at a next section of Romans 8. Let's read verses 18 to 25 together. This is a dense passage, but don't worry about it because I'm a dense preacher. So uh, that's going to work well. And truth be told, a few of you are dense, so we're in good company. This is dense in the sense that it's theologically thick. But I'm going to try to really break it down, and uh, it's talking about things that we don't normally think about too much. So that's good. It's good to be stretched. This isn't going to be the same old, same old. You know, this isn't going to be three tips to a better life. This is going to cause us to think a little bit, and uh, that's good. So put your thinking caps on, and uh, let's read verses 18 through 25, Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. Let's pray. God, thank you for your great mercy to us, and we're relying on your mercy today because we want to ask that you would open our eyes to understand this passage and mostly to see you and your glory, Lord. We thank you for the promise of this chapter that we will never be condemned if we're believers in Christ, that we have experienced your fatherly love and always will. 
and that your spirit dwells within us. And so based on that, we're asking you to speak to us today, Lord, as those who've been set free, as those who are indwelt by the spirit, as those who are covered in the love of the father. We want to make this request. Would you, Abba Father, speak to us from your scripture today and change us by your power. And I particularly pray for the suffering in our midst. I pray that you would communicate to them a great hope, to us, all of us, a great hope in your uh, glory and in your future coming for us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been walking through this chapter. We're calling this series Set Free. And uh, last week we looked at these two big ideas from chapter 8. We looked at the fact that the Bible teaches here that God indwells us, that is, He lives in us by His Spirit. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. And one sure thing the Holy Spirit does is He kills sin. He puts to death sin in our life. So He gives us new life, and then He helps us walk out that new life. Uh, He calls us, we're the ones who put sin to death, but we do it by His Spirit, the Scripture says, empowered by Him. But never happened without Him. So that's what we talked about last week. And then we talked about the Spirit also is the Spirit of adoption, that we've been adopted by the Father, that we're His children, His sons and daughters. And that means a number of things. It means that we're not slaves uh, to fear, but we're free to approach Him with free access uh, like a dad. Uh, and talk to him and receive his care and his comfort. And we're also, uh, he, as a, the Spirit also convicts us, gives us a witness, gives us a conviction and assurance that we're his children. So the Holy Spirit not only gives us new life, not only makes us children of the Father, but then constantly is seeking to convince us of that reality because we doubt it oftentimes. So that's what we looked at last week. Now there was this one detail at the end of the passage that I skipped over very quickly. Uh, because I knew it was the topic this week, and because I was long-winded and out of time, because it came in the last verse, verse 17. Let's read that. That was from last week. And if children, that means adopted by the Father, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So, the passage is mentioning this truth, that Jesus suffered And Jesus was glorified. There's these two dimensions of Jesus' life. His suffering in the cross, and then his glory in the resurrection and in the ascension and in the exaltation and his seating at the right hand of the Father. So we see Jesus suffering and we see glory in his life. And guess what? The same is true for us. It says that if we're in Christ Jesus, we will suffer and we will be glorified with him. That's what verse 17 said. So there are these two dimensions, suffering and glory, and verse 17, and that carries into 18. Look at 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time or this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. So Jesus suffered and was glorified. We suffer and will be glorified. And then it says here as well that our sufferings in this age do not compare to the glory that will be revealed to us. Now, now that we're on the topic of suffering, let me make very clear that everything we said in the last five weeks, we're not leaving. We're still, it's all the foundation for this. To face suffering, this chapter would teach us we need to face it with this in mind. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That when I hit suffering, that doesn't mean God is now uh, condemning me. 
Uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm welcome and accepted before his throne. I'm declared righteous. The Spirit of God lives in us. So when I suffer, that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit left me. That's still a truth. The Spirit of God causes us to put to death sin, empowers us to do it. So when we suffer, that doesn't mean that the Spirit left us and we can't have victory over sin by putting it to death and putting on the righteousness of Christ. Uh, it says that we're adopted as God's children, so it doesn't mean that when we start suffering, God the Father no longer loves us. God the Father is distancing himself from his care for us, and he sort of let us go, and now he's not really holding us up or loving us. That, does not, that is not what it means. All of that is still true. It's still true, but the reality is that we all face, as verse 18 says, the sufferings of this present time. So all the wonderful truths that we looked at, no condemnation, and dwelt by the Spirit, children of the living God, all of those truths are completely true, and here's what's also true. We suffer. We sin. People sin against us, sometimes grievously, harming us. We grievously sin against others. We're weak. We get sick. We die. All of that's true with all of the truths of victory that I talked about. Last week. What's more victorious than I'll never be condemned? I'm loved by the Father. I mean, that is victory. I died. That doesn't sound like victory. I'm sick. I sinned. I had a fight with my wife and we can't get it worked out. I'm weak. I'm ignorant. I forgot. All this stuff. That doesn't sound like victory. But both are true at the same time. And it is very important, really important, that I and that you, that we learn this. Because if we don't get this right, life will not make sense. We'll either despair, we'll get bitter towards God, we'll get bitter towards others. But we want to get fixed in our heart this expectation of the Christian life. That I already have all these truths about me. I'm justified, declared righteous is what that means. I am a new creation. I have the Spirit of God dwelling in me. All of that is true. It's already true. But we're not yet in heaven. And so while all that's true, I'm not living in a perfect world. And you're not living in a perfect world. And we're living together in an imperfect world. And it shows, doesn't it, <laughs> at times. So it's, here's how theologians have said this sometimes. We have an already but a not yet. We're already new creatures, but we're not yet in the fullness of the new creation like we will be in the new heavens and new earth. We're already adopted, but we haven't seen our Father face to face in a sin-free zone, in a suffering-free zone. We already have new life of the Spirit, but we don't yet experience new life with a capital L where all things, behold, all things are being, been made new, like in Revelation. So we already have all these things, but not yet, and we live in that tension. Now, I noticed after the second service, I, I hope I was paying attention in the first, but I didn't notice it until singing the second time, that we sang this today. This is the Christian life. So we sang this new song uh, called Already. Can you put that up, uh, Tim? This is the chorus. Okay, I'll just look at it there. Here's the chorus. You're already all I need. Already everything that I could hope for. You're already all I need. You've already set me free. That's true. That's, that's, we looked at that. We're, we're free. We're not slaves. Already making me more like you. You're already all I need. Jesus, you're already all I need. So we sang that. That's true. I believe that. God, you're everything to me. You've set me free. But then the next song, we sang this song saying, asking the Holy Spirit to move. It's a way of saying, I mean, he doesn't move locations. It's a way of saying, God, would you act in our midst? And here's what we sang that chorus. 
For when you move, when God is active, our lives are changed. We know a taste of heaven here. We're crying out for more of you. Lord, come and move. So we're we saying, we saying, first of all, you're already set me free. But Lord, if you would act, I would get a taste of heaven. Because I'm not in heaven. Both of these are true. So one song, I don't know if these were separated by a song or if they're right back, but we can go back to back. You're already all I need. That's, that's, there's therefore now no condemnation. Now, verse 1. And then also, there is this sense of, I'm longing for glory. And Lord, would you bring a little heaven down to us that we get a taste of heaven here? This is the Christian life. And we don't live in just one or the other. If we live in the already, then that means there's no problems, never lose a job, never get sick, everything, it's heaven right now. That's not what the Bible teaches. But if we don't, if, if, we, if we're all, so we have to realize that it's, we're living in this world, this age, but there's also this hope for the future age. So we don't, we're not pessimists like everything. There's no difference. We're no different than an unbeliever. Life's terrible. Life's empty. There's no meaning. But one day we'll get to heaven and it'll all be okay. No. Spirit of God lives in us. He's made us his children. We already experience him, but not yet in fullness. So that's what this passage is about, that we live in these two ages, the already but the not yet. Think of it this way. The Christian life is inevitably life in middle school. It is the in-between. We're not, it's like living between childhood and adulthood. It's like living between this life and the life to come. The life to come has invaded this life, and the Spirit lives in us. But we're not there yet, so we're in this in-between, in-between age. Welcome to junior high. That's kind of what, it, uh, what the spiritual life is like. Two ages. Now, he doesn't just mention two ages, but he compares them. Look at verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, we could say this age, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he's saying what we experience now, these sufferings, they don't even compare to what the glory is going to be like in that day when we meet him face to face. This verse is the same verse. He says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. You may know this verse. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So he's giving a weight comparison. Right now, it's light and momentary. It doesn't feel light and momentary, does it? Our sufferings feel huge right now. That's because we're in this age. What he says is there's coming a day when we will look back and we'll say all our sufferings, when we're in glory and we're with him face to face, that's going to be heavy. The weight of glory. The word glory means weight. It has to do with weightiness. The, the weight of God's very presence in life. It's not a light thing. The emanating transcendence of God. The glorious light of God. His glory. That's going to be so great one day that we will look back at this day and we'll say that was a light, that was like a feather, and it was a millisecond. The greatest sufferings will appear that way. And so he's wanting us to look at that day. He's not saying sufferings don't matter. He's not saying get over yourself, heaven's coming. That is not what he's saying. Sufferings are very real now. It calls for tremendous compassion and care for one another. Never do we, I would not pull these verses out, by the way. Counseling tip, pastoral tip, friendship tip, Christian tip. I would not pull these verses out and just sort of just fling them about flippantly to someone who's in tremendous suffering. Because it can feel like, just get over yourself, it's going to be great in heaven. And so we don't deal with this flippantly. 
But it is a truth that must inform our lives, and Paul wants this to be real handles for us to be able to live this life out, that we're looking forward to that day and the joy of heaven and the bliss that awaits and the glory that awaits and all that we've hoped and longed for, that the hope of that day gives us strength to persevere through this day. So it's, it's, to, be, it's to help us to think of suffering and glory. In this day there's suffering, but in that day in glory there will be no suffering. Okay, so there's two ideas that he covers in the next verses we're going to read. First of all, he talks about the suffering and glory of creation. Then he talks about the suffering and glory of God's children. I got that outline from John Stott. I thought he separated that very good. The suffering and glory of God's creation and the suffering and glory of God's children. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So what is the revealing of the sons of God? What he's saying here is he's going to go on and talk about the redemption of our bodies. He's talking about that there's going to be a revealing of what God has done in our lives that's going to be way beyond what it is today. And that's going to be when he returns and he calls us out of our graves and he gives us resurrection bodies. We're going to, we're going to see him and be as he is. So one day, all believers will receive a body like Christ's resurrection body. It's a spirit body. It's a glorious body. It reflects the glory of God. And we're going to all receive that one day. That's going to be when, when it will really be revealed what God has done in your life. I can look at you now and I can see some things that God has done in your life maybe. But there's going to be a day where if I could see it now, I'd be blinded. I'd be blown away by the glory of God. So... That's going to happen one day. And he says uh, that the creation waits with eager longing for that day. The creation is waiting for that day. What is he talking about? He He is giving personal characteristics or qualities to the creation. He is personifying the creation. And he's in essence saying that the trees outside, the rain from this morning, uh, the grass, it can't wait to see the final product of what God has done. When his redemption is finished, it cannot wait. The Grand Canyon cannot wait to see the, the children of God in their glory, the revealing of them. They, they cannot wait. Uh, the, this idea of eagerly waiting, it, it's like craning of the neck. It's like looking for something. Uh, One paraphrase read this way. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. The Grand Canyon is at a parade on tiptoe trying to look over. I don't know who the Grand Canyon would be looking over in creation. You know, the galaxy looking over a galaxy that's blocking the view of the parade to see the children of God walking down in resurrection bodies, saved by the God, loved by the father, the power of the gospel on display through his people. It's craning to see that. That's how glorious, he says, what's coming is. So he goes on in the next few verses, and Paul says several things. First of all, he says the creation, what God has created, is currently frustrated. Verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. The NIV says frustration. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So all of creation experiences a frustration right now, a futility right now. Now, all of creation was affected by the fall of Genesis 3. So God creates a wonderful, a perfect, a glorious universe. Adam and Eve sin, and then all of the creation is affected by that. 
Uh, Genesis 3.17 says this, And to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So he's saying the very ground is cursed because of the fall. There's thorns and thistles that come up. So you get weeds in your flower beds and weeds in your garden, and they grow faster and bigger than the flowers that you plant because the universe is affected. The ground is cursed. It's not working the way it is supposed to work. And so there's a futility or a frustration of all creation. Secondly, he says, not only is the creation frustrated, but the creation will be set free. That's the theme of our series. Verse 21. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So he's saying there's coming a day when the creation will change, it won't be a slave to decay. Everything decays. Everything disintegrates. This is, uh, this is entropy, that the universe is running down. Everything dies and decomposes. And he calls that slavery. Everything now is enslaved to corruption, this, this dying that takes place. Uh, yesterday in this auditorium, there was a graduation that took place. I was part of that, and uh, some students were graduating. And so as part of the graduation, the various graduates had slideshows kind of briefly, uh, you know, representing their lives, which I found fascinating and wonderful and sort of tear-jerking because I knew a bunch of the kids. But uh, the other thing which I found not tear-jerking but uh, moderately humorous was to look at the parents in the slides because if you show Johnny 18 years ago and Dad's in the picture, we see what Dad looked like 18 years ago, and it was proof that there is decomposition and disintegration and death occurring in this room because... You know, I'm thinking, whoa, like my wife, hey, do I look that bad? I mean, you know, 18 years, no, I didn't say that. But uh, it was like, whoa. And so 18 years from now, guess what? Everybody's going to look a lot worse than they do now. And those graduates aren't going to look like they do today with their fresh faces 18 years from now. Why? Because though we're alive, we're dying. And there's coming, and that, that's all of what's happened in the creation. But there's coming a day when that will not be the case. And as it says here, it will be set free from the bondage of corruption and it will f- receive the freedom and glory of the children of God. The creation will be renewed just as we have been renewed and will be renewed with our resurrection bodies. So we will be set free. The creation will be set free. Thirdly, the creation is groaning in labor. For we know that the whole creation, verse 22, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, Again, this is a personification, but what he's saying is the whole creation is like groaning for this day when it will be set free. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. So when you feel, when we're aware of the pains with the groaning, I was thinking about what is that all about? What is that like? Um, I don't know what it's like for the universe to groan, but... uh, I have a little bit of an experience. Uh, we lived for a number of years, a lot of years, in Southern California. And when we first moved there, I was in my, uh, uh, Ginger and I were both in our early to mid-20s, and we looked a lot younger and less decayed uh, then. Um, she still looks good, but I look decayed, so I better be careful uh, on that one. She's in the children's ministry, but she'll hear the podcast. 
you told the church I was decaying? No, I didn't. Just said I'm decaying. But uh, so we moved out there in our mid-20s. And I remember early on, uh, she was at work and I was in the apartment. And we had an earthquake and I had no idea what to do. I'd never been in an earthquake, didn't know anything about earthquakes. Like, do you board up the windows? Do you get in a bathtub? No, it's hurricanes. It's sort of, I don't know what you do. And so I'm just like running around thinking it's the end of the world because the ground, which is normally not moving, was moving. And, you know, things are shaking in the house. Pictures are falling down. And it feels like it felt to me like the end of the world, like the universe was dying, like this was the gasping breath of death and the earth was dying. But the scripture says that's not the case, that ultimately, uh, now I'm not sure this is, I'm not trying to say this is a meteorological description he's making here, but I am saying that's really, I should have interpreted that not as the end of the world, but really the birth of the next. Yes, all the elements of this world will die, but there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, that will resurrect, we could say maybe, that will come. And so that's what he's saying. It's, it's, there is this groaning in the creation because it's longing for the future. And if the creation <clears throat> gets that, if a bird gets that, if a bush gets that, how much more should we be longing for the creation? And that's where the new creation, and that's where he goes. In the next section, he talks about the suffering and glory of God's children. Starts with the suffering and glory of God's creation and goes to the suffering and glory of God's children. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. We groan because we wait for something else. I believe every person, Christian or non-Christian, believer, unbeliever, has this sense in their heart that there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more than this. And at times there can be a longing, a groaning for something greater, something realer, something uh, glorious that gets beyond this world and gets to what we were actually created for. In the Ortland book I was recommending, there's a quote from Woody Allen, which I thought was very insightful, that describes this groaning, this angst of the soul, thinking there's got to be something else. A Christian has a very different answer than he, at this point, he doesn't give what would be a Christian answer, but there's a very different answer we find in the scripture. But listen to this, his experience. He says, I always see death's head lurking. I could be sitting at Madison Square Garden at the most exciting basketball game and they're cheering and everything is thrilling and one of the players is doing something very beautiful and my thought will be, he's only 28 years old and I only wish he could savor this moment in some way because you know, this is as good as it's going to get for him. The fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity, Woody Allen says, is the constant struggle against annihilation and against death. It's absolutely stupefying in its terror, and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. As Camus wrote, it's not only that he dies or that man dies, but that you struggle to do a work of art that will last and then realize that the universe itself is not going to exist after a time. 
So he describes living a life where death is stupefying, and no matter what you accomplish, enjoy it for the moment, because it will not last. And by the way, you will not last, and what's more, all of the universe will not last. And Paul offers a tremendous hope into that kind of despair which we can all face. Even as Christians, we can ask that kind of question, those kind of questions sometimes, like, what, what am I living for? And so the reality is that God gives us something glorious to anticipate as believers so that everything in life has meaning rather than nothing in life has meaning. And if you've never experienced the hope um, of heaven, the hope of seeing God face to face, the hope of the forgiveness of your sins, you can experience that by turning to Christ. Christ gives us new life by recognizing that we have sinned and we have separated ourselves from him, but he died on the cross in our place, and he rose to new life to defeat death. And if we believe in him, we receive this eternal life to live forever, and we receive his spirit to give us new life right now, today. And he gives us meaning, and he gives us hope, but ultimately he's going to make us a part. Uh, We will experience this glorious new day with him one day in the future after we die. That's his promise here. A Christian has a very different sense than what Paul writes here. We are made for eternity, for a longing. The longing we have in our hearts is natural. The longing for something more is from God, and that's what he talks about here. He says, first of all, number one, that we groan inwardly. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He says we groan eagerly. Now we have the first fruits of the Spirit. What does this mean? Well, in the Old Testament, when the Jews planted crops, they would grow a crop, and the very first crops that they uh, harvested, they would offer to the Lord. And those were called the first fruits. And that communicated a couple of things, that God had been good and had given them water and had given them crop life, the crop's life. But it also communicated that there was a guarantee that there would be more, that the first crops had come up and there was a harvest to follow. And so what he's saying is we have the Holy Spirit living in us, but that's the first fruits. There's coming a harvest far greater than we know right now. And that's the living presence of God, where we are able to see him as he is, to worship him, to be in his presence for eternity with no sin, suffering, sorrow, sickness, none of this, but to live in glorious perfection beyond what we can even imagine. And so that's the full harvest that's coming. Right now, we have the Holy Spirit living in us, And that is the first fruits. That is the beginning of something that is coming. So we have life, but we are expecting life in all caps, real life before God. But he says we groan. So we have the Spirit, and yet we groan in the pains, I'm sorry, yet we groan ourselves, We groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we have the Spirit, but we're waiting for something else. The the adoption, which is the redemption of our bodies. So what does that mean? He says that there's coming a day when our bodies are redeemed, we have a new body, spiritual body, that will be our real adoption. That's adoption day. 
So right now, we, have, we are already adopted. He is our Father. We have access. He loves us. He is near us. He is caring for us, and He's giving us the Spirit to convince us constantly of His love for us. We have that, but Adoption Day is coming when we meet our dad face-to-face, not as first fruits, but in fullness. That will be the fullness of our adoption is coming that day. So, we have the Spirit as a down payment. We are adopted, verse 15, and yet we will have fullness of adoption. And in the meantime, between the Spirit and that fullness, the coming of the Spirit and the fullness of adoption, in this meantime, we groan. We groan. I don't know what your expectations, expectations are about the Christian life, but this is why the already and not yet are so important. Because all of this truth, not condemned, Spirit of God lives in us, adopted, it still waits for future ultimate adoption. There's still a waiting that takes place when we meet our dad face to face. We're still waiting for that day. And in the meantime, we groan. We already have all of these blessings. We already have the Spirit living in us. We already have God changing us. We already have forgiveness of our sins. But we've not yet experienced the fullness of that. And so the in-between time is a season of joy? Yes. A season of peace? Yes. A season of experiencing God do new things? Yes. And a season of groaning. At the same time, it's a season of groaning because we're groaning for what we ultimately desire and still have not yet experienced. Here's the reality. We can misinterpret our suffering. We can misinterpret our suffering. Here's what we tend to think when we suffer. When we face discouragement, when we face challenges, when we face any suffering, difficulty, weakness, sickness, sin, um, conflict, death, grief, sorrow, when we experience any of these, where we often go is to something must be wrong with me because of how I feel, this emptiness, this groaning in me. Something must be wrong with me. Or, If it's a conflict, something must be wrong with you. We go there very quickly as well. So we tend to say, when we experience some kind of suffering and we long for something greater, we tend to say, something is wrong with me. And yet, the passage teaches that there is a longing, that there is a yearning for the glory that awaits that we experience in our sufferings that that's not abnormal, but that that is actually normal. That there is to be, God is so glorious, so wonderful, so holy, so loving, that we want to be with Him, and there is a yearning that we don't have the fullness of that now. And when you experience that that discontent, not sinful discontent, but the discontent of, I want Him in all his fullness, and I, this, the, the sufferings of this life are not supposed to be ultimately there. They won't be there. That, is a, that produces a groaning in us. And it's, we shouldn't think that is bad or wrong. That's life. This is, uh, listen to this quote. This is how Ortland described it. I thought this was so helpful. He said, when your heart is aching, How many of us are that way today? When your heart is aching to be rid of sin and frailty, that is not because your Christian life isn't working, but because it is working. 
when there is a longing in your soul to not face the same sin again, when there's a longing in your soul not to face the same physical pain and suffering again, when there is a longing in your soul not to recount the same painful memories of someone's sin towards you again, when there is a longing not to experience the grief anymore of the person that died that you're grieving over, when there is a longing that to be free from that and to be with God face to face, that does not mean your Christianity is not working. It means it is working. That is the Spirit. We have the first fruits. And here he says, we could say a lot about the Spirit. We could say, we could look at the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. But here the fruit of the Spirit is groaning. Groaning and longing and yearning for that day. A love for God, an anticipation of Him, a desire to see this wonderful Father who has showered us with undeserved love, who has cared for us, who has rescued us and saved us, who has adopted us, this judge who has declared us righteous. This king who has made us his children and drawn him, drawn us into his very palace before his throne in worship, that we want to see him and be with him and we long and we groan and we yearn. That's the Spirit of God. So Paul is writing to suffering people and say, hey, if you are suffering and desiring him, desiring that day, that doesn't mean that all these other truths must not be true. That means the Spirit is at work in us. See, here's what happens. We often have desires, uh, uh, frustrated desires. We often have um, uh, groanings in our heart that we think reveal that something is wrong with us. And that's not the case. So, for instance, we thirst for God. You're in a dry season. You thirst for God. I want God's presence. We sang this morning. I want to experience His moving and His presence in a new way. And there must be something wrong with me because I'm groaning for more. That is the Spirit of God that causes us to long for the day when we see Him face to face. Do we pray like we prayed today that we might encounter Him in greater measure today? Of course! But ultimately, you will never encounter Him here like you will that day. The glory of that day will far surpass anything we can imagine this day. And so we have a longing to drink from an eternal fountain, and we will not taste that until we see him face to face. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. There are longings in your soul. There are desires in your heart. I'm speaking to Christians right now who have the Spirit of God, who are justified, adopted. There are longings in your heart that will never be met here. And the Lord allows us, along with creation, to groan for that day in anticipation of Him. See, we tend to think, well, I'm just going to fix that. What's wrong with me? I'm feeling this. Have you ever felt, maybe not thirsty, have you ever felt displaced? you ever felt like, I don't feel like I fit? I don't feel like I belong? He's my father, I'm in his family, but I don't feel like I experience that sort of belonging type of a sense. Now, I believe God likely has much more of a sense of belonging for all of us and a much more of a sense of family. I believe that. However, 
That is a yearning for something you will never experience in this life. There is a belonging that will come when you see your father face to face. There is a belonging that will come when you stand with the family of God in his presence that will never come this side of heaven. And that longing causes us to press into our Father. That groaning causes us to cry out to our Father. That groaning causes us to, to lean or is intended to cause us to lean into Him. Or we experience pain. We experience physical pain and we long for the day that the physical pain ends. And there's a groaning, not just because we hurt physically, but there's a groaning for that day. That's from the Lord. There's a groaning for the day when there's the redemption of the sons of God. A groaning. Maybe it's sadness and sorrow. And you're waiting for a day when you're not sad and sorrow, that sorrowful. That grief, that groaning, that longing for that to be done away with, that's a longing for heaven when He will wipe every tear from our eyes. We already have the Spirit. We already have the, uh, the Lord's nearness. We already have His care. We already have His help in our weakness, the Spirit of God. But we don't yet have the Father wiping every tear from our eyes. That's going to come. And so the groaning is, causes us to trust, to press in, to receive from God, to look to Him, and to also realize that this side of heaven, there's going to be some of that. In seasons, there may be a lot of that. And a new fill-in-the-blank in this earth won't fully satisfy that need. It will always be. Your spouse will never be able to be Jesus to you. Your spouse will never be able to love you enough, to make you secure enough, that you have no need for God. That will never happen. There will be a day when, when we, will, we will sense the full love of God in full display, fully, uh, with no barrier. That need will be met then. It, we can tend to think, this is what we tend to think in life, if I have a new fill in the blank, then I will have all the longings of my heart answered. So a new relationship. If I have a new relationship, that will meet all the longings of the heart. God may have a new relationship for you that's a huge blessing, encouragement, strengthening, wonderful. The, the, what I said before, there's that belonging that you feel in that new relationship to a degree. Absolutely, God may have that. But there will be no new relationship that will ever fulfill what we will receive when we see him face to face. And so there's a groaning for that day. Or, I just need a new health. I need new health. I need a new doctor. I need a new treatment. I need something. Now, maybe you do need a new doctor, and maybe you can get some relief uh, in some way for the physical suffering that you experience. But there's some reality that we will never be fully pain-free. There is no pain-free zone until heaven. And so we long for that day. I've used the other illustrations, the crying, the sorrow, the suffering. I need a new place. I need a new city. I need a new state. I need a new country. God might be moving you to a new city, a new state, or a new country. I don't know. But wherever you go, you take you to that new city and to that new state 
and to that new country. You're there. The Spirit of God is with you there, and the Spirit of God is with you where you're, wherever you live right now. But there is this sense where we think, if I get a fresh human start in a new neighborhood, if I had a new neighborhood with new neighbors, in a new city, with a new climate, whatever it is you want, whatever it is you're long, longing for, a mountain or a beach or uh, different people, or what, if I had that, then I would be okay. Listen, when you're in the new city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven in Revelation, at the end of Revelation, then you'll have it. Then I'll have it. But until then, there will be a groaning for that day, a longing for him that will never be ultimately fulfilled. And this is going somewhere. This is good news. That's where he's getting to. This isn't bad news. This is very good news. What I'm trying to say is that we misinterpret our sufferings and then we also misprescribe their diagnosis. I need something new, a new spouse, a new beginning, a new friend, a new job, a new church, a new neighborhood, a new car, a new child, a a new parent. I mean, just run through the list. And and the reality is we we need to ultimately be in his presence. And there may be differences that come along the way that help us, that encourage us, that draw us to him, but eternal glory is what we're longing for. The groaning of our soul is the groaning of heaven. And so I would never say what I'm about to say to someone who's in suffering, because I would never want this said to me and my suffering, but there is a degree to which Paul is saying here. So I would say this to someone who's not suffering. There's a degree here where what he's saying is, What do you expect this side of heaven? There can be increasing experiences of the Spirit, increasing joy, increasing freedom. Absolutely. Increasing godly relationships, increasing productivity, bearing fruit in our home, in our jobs, in our relationship, increasing health. There can be increasing all of these kind of things. But ultimately, there will always be the sufferings of this present age, and there will always be a groaning. And if the groaning leads to mere discontent, it has not met its purpose. The groaning is to press us to Jesus in anticipation. The groaning is to thrust us at his feet. The groaning is to shed every other hope, every other hope, and look at him alone, our only hope. The hope, what does the Bible say? The hope of glory. Am I saying you get nothing until glory? No, there's plenty now, but it's the hope of glory. And we fill it with so many sub-glory hopes, so many trinkets, so many quick fixes, so many, if this is different and that is different and this, then I'll experience, no, it's the hope of glory that we long for, so press into Him with anticipation. I'm out of time, but here's the last point. I've got to say this. Uh, we hope patiently. We groan inwardly. We hope patiently. There's great hope here. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There is a great hope. He's saying in the midst of all these new creation realities, in the midst of our new identity in Christ, There is the already, which we thank God for and celebrate. There is the not yet as well, and we hope in Christ for that day. And that is what propels us in our lives. The whole chapter is painting a picture of the wonder of God. 
The God who forgives us and declares us righteous. The God who adopts us. The God whose love is eternal and unconditional for us. The God who takes up residence in us. There is all these promises of who God is. Why? So that our eyes look to Him. So that our heart rests on Him. So that our trust is focused on Him. And we anticipate Him and that great day and that is our strength. We are to be amazed by the wonder of who He is. And the more amazed by who He is and the more amazed at what lies ahead, then the less the inconveniences really inconvenience. And there's grace to walk through the sufferings. And there's grace to mend relationships. And there's grace to go back to our job tomorrow. And there's grace to be with our family when there's challenges within that. And there's grace to wake up tomorrow with the very real pain of body or of soul, the anguish of the Spirit that many of us face. There's grace for all that. It does not mean that's easy. It does not mean there's no sufferings. It just means that we are empowered by a longing for Him and a confidence in Him and His presence that keeps us going. That, that is called hope. That's why he says, who hopes for what he sees? If you've got heaven now, there's no need for hope. If you have no problems now, there's no need for hope. If you have 100% health right now, there's no need for hope. If you have all the money imaginable, there's no need for hope. If all of your relationships are perfect and your marriage is an 11 on a scale of 1 to 10, there's no need for hope. If you never sin, there's no need for hope. But if you are suffering... In any way, there is need for hope, and Jesus is that hope. He is trying to tell us that the glory is so great in that day that it's worth everything today. Because all of this is so light and so momentary. We'll be there very quickly. And so he's saying that day informs this day, and it is worth it. Jesus is the treasure, and it is worth giving everything to buy the field to get the treasure. Jesus is the pearl of great price, and it is worth everything to know Him and to experience His grace. The revelation of Jesus and who He is stirs our hearts so that we know it's worth it all. Press on, it's worth it all. Endure, it's worth it all. Grace for the endurance, wonderful experiences along the way, but what awaits us none of us can imagine. Closing quote, and we're done. So what Ortland says about this when he wraps up. He says, The gospel transforms us because the promises of God match the yearnings of our hearts perfectly. This is how God turns ordinary people into heroes. He has the nerve, if I may put it that way, to look us right in the eye and say, Your present sufferings are not worth comparing with what I'm planning for you in a renewed creation. Who else can say that to us? Nobody else even thinks in those terms. Everybody else is offering us escape from our sufferings. But no one else is offering us an eternal hope infinitely greater than our sufferings. All human gospels are trivial. That means every human promise of good, of, of good news is trivial and trivializing. But the bold magnitude of the promises of God make following Jesus worth it all. The bold magnitude of the promises of God 
make following Jesus worth it all. The glory to be revealed, the glory to come, the hope of glory in front of us is to animate and fill and empower us today. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.